but you realize at some point that being a badass is simply the, the ability to keep on going when you don't want to. This is Glenn Murphy with NC Sistema, and this is Sistema for Life. Rick, how are you, pal? Welcome to the podcast. Oh, I'm doing so good, Glenn. It's uh, great to see you, hear you. Uh, I can listen to you smile. And <laughs> it's a good morning out here in uh, Newport News, VA. So doing good. Doing good. Yeah, good. yeah it's been, uh, well, it's been a matter of weeks since I saw you last when we had a, a, a minor retreat, a COVID safe retreat out in the mountains there miles from anybody. So that was that was kind of fun. Yes. But yeah. Shh. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it didn't happen. <laughs> what, what happens in the North Carolina mountains stays in the North Carolina mountains. That's why we're going to keep it that way. Cool. Well, it's, uh, it's great to see you. Um, if, can you kick off just a little bit by telling folks uh, a little bit about uh, who you are, what you do for a living, and what your connection is to Systema Training? Sure. Um, I'm a professor of economics. Um, I specialize in environmental economics. Mm. Uh, I teach at a liberal arts university, uh, Christopher Newport University, which is a gorgeous, lovely little uh, campus, and uh, uh, we get some really good students out here. And I just have a fantastic time teaching um, economic thinking yeah. and uh, advanced environmental economics classes. Um, as an environmental economist, of course, uh, I, I walk an interesting line because you know, for my uh, conservative friends, I'm a little too liberal. And then for my liberal friends, I'm a little too conservative. So I walk this uh, uh, <laughs> a lonely no man's land, if you will. But yeah. I take great pleasure from being always right about everything. <laughs> That's the job of an economist, isn't it? Or, or <laughs> academics generally. So to, to be smug and right about things as yes, much as possible. That's, that's basically, that's my job description. I just, I'm just right about everything. Um, <laughs> And uh, so that's about what I do professionally. Um, and uh, my connection to Sistema um, is I've been, I, I was introduced to Sistema back in uh, 2010. Mm. Um, but uh, I had to, so that was back in Eugene, Oregon. And I trained for about a year and then I had to leave. I went back to India, which is where I'm originally from. Yeah. And then for the next, uh, oh my God, seven years, um, I really had no way to uh, train with other people in Sistema. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought I was still keeping up a little bit, you know, rolling around the ground and doing some push-ups, but whatnot. But then, um, fortunately, when I uh, landed up in Newport News, I was able to then uh, reconnect with uh, training in Sistema again. That was 2017. Yeah. Um, and so now... Uh, I, I don't really have a place I can train on a regular basis locally. Sure. So I have to travel to train. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, the one good thing to come out of the pandemic now has been we now have this remarkable access to uh, training with amazing instructors all over the world. Yeah. Um, just through our devices. And so I've been training with um, you. I've been training with Matt Hill. Yeah. Uh, uh, every time I get a chance to uh, take one of uh, Vladimir's classes, I, I try and do that. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I've been working on. And uh, the other thing that has come out of this experience is I've realized um, how much working on your own self uh, helps even yeah. when you get back to uh, working with others. So that's yeah. been 
uh, revelation uh, through the yeah, that seemed up uh, up in the air for a little while. I think for a lot of people, like some people, just didn't bother. We've talked about it a little bit before on the podcast that they sort of like, ah, if, you, if you're not going to train with people and absorb pressures and punch each other and do things, there's no point. Um, you know, that the, the, they, I think people undervalued the solo work. You know, for all that had been talked about for years, like you have to work on yourself, breathing, keep posture, maintain awareness all day long, do all these things. People are like, yeah, 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 I'll do it. You know, um, and then when there's this yawning opportunity that the pandemic afforded for us to really focus on that, um, people just backed off a lot of the time and didn't do it and didn't do it. And it's it's only since I think Vlad and Matt and other people really started teaching high quality classes online that people realized they could get not just some simulcrum of the real systemic experience through training that way, but they could really work on their own by themselves and and have deep, profound training experiences and, and experience improvements in their awareness and their sensitivity and their strength and their, and their understanding of systema through through working not with other people. Right. And, and then when you come back together again, as we have intermittently, um, it's it's very interesting to see the people who who have been training that way and the people who haven't. You know, you can see the things that people have lost or gained in the interim, definitely. So that's something I want to get into a little bit. Um, just kind of, I, I think you have you're you're uniquely positioned to think about things in terms of incentives and motivations and trade offs like all the time. And we had some really good conversations on the way to the mountains and back about those things in relation to wider life and things as well. Um, and we talked about it. You know. The obvious application is for systemic instructors who are trying to get people to come to systemic classes and figuring out how much they're going to charge and all that kind of stuff, um, which is very interesting. Um, and it's a fairly standard economic problem. But I'm kind of more interested in your take on what you might call behavioral economics instead, you know, like um, how you get people to do things or motivate people to do things in different ways, both in relation to training on our own, especially under the pandemic, we had to motivate ourselves like not to put on 20 pounds and do nothing for a year <laughs> and we had to motivate us. And then we had to kind of figure out some of us without instructors or without that steering. Um, what's important to work on? I've got all this time, but you know, should I work on endurance? Should I work on skill and sensitivity? Sensitivity? Should I, you know, work on moving with a stick or studying Shashka, all these different things that you could do in order to improve your system. It's like, what's the best use of your time and what are the trade-offs when you do one thing versus another? So, um, but before we kind of get into that in in depth, what was what really drew you to systema training in the first place? You know, you could have done any number of other things. I know you did karate for some time before. You did a variant of Kyokushin, right? I think some way before. What what even really attracted you to the martial arts? Is it the same kinds of things that get a lot of people? Which is like this will be something physical to do that's not boring, and I can learn to defend myself as well. Do you know what I mean? And just have that basic capacity as a man or as a person. You know, or was there something else driving you to it? Was there some other curiosity? So I started uh, my karate training when I was in uh, second grade. Mm. At that point, I just had one motivation, and that was to be a legitimate badass like Bruce Lee. Okay. Um, yeah. That that was it. Uh, yeah. Just wanted to kick ass. Yeah. Um, but second grade, right? So then, uh, I, and I trained in in that style of karate for a long time. Um, mm. My dad actually gave me a very important lesson at that point. So when um, I was watching these movies uh, and, uh, you know, Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee and uh, sure. our Bollywood versions of, of uh, <laughs> who are way stronger and they can jump way higher. <laughs> so, right. yeah, I mean, they can kick uh, cars away. So, you know, yeah, they have a far higher quality so of facial hair typically as well. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> go, Jason Statham, you know, but um, 
so so I really wanted to be uh, that kind of a badass when I first started off. Um, and there was no opportunity to get that kind of training. So when the first uh, dojo opened up close to our neighborhood back in India, uh, I just told my dad, hey, I want to do this. Sure. And, uh, my dad, when he was in his university days, um, had uh, trained in judo. Mm. And so uh, he just looked at me with this all-knowing smile and he said, okay, uh, if you want to do this, we will sign you up. But um, you have to promise me that you will put in the work. This is not something that you get into very lightly. So if yeah. you, I'm, I'm absolutely happy. I want you to go and first just check out what people are doing. Take a look mm. at it. And then tell me if you want to do it. But if, you're tell, if you tell me you want to do this, then there is a real commitment to this. Mm. Uh, it, was, it was very surprising to me because my, my dad, being a professor, he had a very... Uh, unique take on uh, education and, and academics. And uh, he never, ever uh, pushed me for mm. studies. It was all like, you find out what you like and you develop your own liking for it. So and he wanted the, the motivations to be intrinsic. kind yes, of. Yes, very much so. He wanted yeah. me to discover what I like doing when it came to my studies, which is very different from the standard parenting style in India. Mm. Uh, but... <laughs> But then when it comes to when it came to this one thing, he said, OK, but there is a commitment involved. I want you to respect that commitment mm. and realize what you're get going into and then go do it. So immediately at that point, I had a bit of a jerk. It's like I'm trying to become this legit badass. So what are you even talking about? Mm. I love becoming this amazing superhuman. Mm. And, and, you know, I go into training and obviously uh, when you're training in this uh intense karate style and it was it, ours was a full contact style mm. uh, and we did full contact kumite yeah sparring sessions so uh the only things that were not allowed was punching someone in the face or mm. kicking or punching someone in the groins but yeah other than that it was full contact no restrictions and we didn't have any gloves or these, yeah. uh, kicking boots so it was just full-on uh, you know, train for a while in these basic stances and and your punches and kicks, and then just let's let's spar. Yeah. So pretty soon, I mean, the first time basically got punched in the guts. Uh, I realized there was going to be a bit of work, and that's where the commitment came in. Right after you yeah. hit, uh, then to show up the next day, or when you're feeling very very sore, mm. and do you still show up? And that's where the commitment idea came in. But Mm. Uh, I guess when my my dad was able to uh, convince me about the importance of just if you've committed to something, just give it some some time. So yeah. I did that for a while, uh, did that for about six years. And um, but then we had to move away uh, to a different place mm. uh, because my dad changed his job. And so then I left that system. However, by the time I had I left karate, uh, I also had started growing this uh, feeling of discomfort with it because, mm. you know, uh, we were working on these very stable stances and these kicks and these punches. And then when we would work the work into the sparring system, which was basically a free fight, these things would just turn into full on brawls. Mm. All these sophisticated, refined techniques would go out of the window and we would just uh be reduced to our base instincts 
just grabs mm. and punch someone, try and hit them with your knee. But, but so all of this fine motor skills, yeah, uh, which we were working on, would pretty much vanish. So mm. that uh, that had raised this problem in me, and this is I'm, I'm now talking about like sixth grade. Yeah, uh, and at that point, I had I had realized this this disconnect between what I'm working on and then how how that's never showing up when I'm actually getting in a fight. Sure. Uh, also would, would happen whenever I'd get in fights in school or, you know, I mean, uh, bullying was common. And so fights were common in, in schools I went to. Yeah. And, and that's not unique to you, just to kind of reiterate, as like a sixth grader or somebody only training at a certain level, because you see people like Lyoto Machida in, a, you know, in MMA, and they're ostensibly, you know, a downgraded black belt who was like came from that karate background. But when he fights, it looks like kickboxing in MMA, you know, with, like, with, the, with the occasional kind of karate power punch in there or front kick that looks a little bit different. But the, but the way he uses his feet and the way he uses his combinations and movements and... Uh, it's not karate, right? It's clearly not. So it's like, so even highly trained karate people, when they get into fights, in some senses, aren't doing karate. You know, <laughs> it's, right. they're, they're, they're yeah. fighting with some of the attributes they've learned from yeah. karate, in a sense. Exactly. So, yeah. it's all of a sudden, my, my access to all of this that I've working on, I've worked on so far, vanishing yeah. was was point of discomfort. Now, so long, long story to say, um, that experience taught me the importance of commitment, but it also raised this important question in my mind, mm. is that if, if when I get into a fight, it's a very different feeling than what I'm training for, I don't understand what the connection is. And, you yeah. know, for a sixth grader, that's some sort of a mystery. Sure. So then I, I moved away from that system, and uh, I, I always harbored that... Uh, 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 I always harbored a, a soft corner for anything martial arts. Sure. But I had also grown a little dis disillusioned with it. Sure. Uh, cut to 20, uh, it was 2007. Mm. And by this time, I had given up all hopes of becoming Bruce Lee. Uh, <laughs> also, because I had put on enough weight where I, I was sure that uh, I, I'm not ever going to do like a badass flying kick. You're not going to pull off that backward somersault kick yeah, in the head thing yeah, again. Yeah, I'm yeah. like slowly starting to realize that. And yeah. at this point, Steven Seagal comes in my radar. I'm like, I could do that. Look at that. He's fat. I could do yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still have to put on a bit, a bit more weight if I wanted to do that. But <laughs> also, pro proclaim yourself a minor bodhisattva as well. I think uh, somewhere along the line, you have to claim you're, uh, you're some sort of a deity as well to, to be a Steven Seagal. <laughs> <laughs> wear sunglasses indoors at all times. That's apparently critical to the training method. <laughs> yeah, that and those leather jackets, man. I mean, that, that was the other thing. I but, mean, it's a joke. It's hard to punch through those. You know, that's tough. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, so he had come in my radar. And uh, really what I mean by that is uh, all of a sudden, and, and we have to give him credit in the sense that that was the first dynamic move away from um, in, in in terms of the movies we were watching, that was the first move away from the stuff we had seen before that, right? Before that, everything was either uh, karate or kung fu, pretty much. Yeah, right. big and flashy, big and flashy. Exactly. But yeah. then all of a sudden, um, or wrestling, even we we saw we saw movies about wrestling or boxing and all that. But all of a sudden, here's Aikido. Uh, mm. Here's someone 
throwing someone else with amazing ease and that's that that started that's has its own own uh uh attractions particularly yeah. if you're if you're uh growing disillusioned of ever being a superhuman physically yeah and so i wanted to start thinking about aikido and uh again uh, in india it wasn't really accessible Mm. But um, I, I still managed to go and travel uh, for a couple of hundred miles and uh, sit in a workshop for uh, about seven days. And that was my first exposure to Aikido. And I loved everything about it. Cool. Uh, mm. It was beautiful. Um, and most importantly, I, I think the biggest uh, lessons I took from it was the roles. Just mm. learning to go down to the ground, take those roles. And they were amazing. Uh, but, yeah. That's a life skill in itself, right? It can right, exactly. save your life and save my life more than once on the motorcycle. Right. <laughs> so, and then uh, went to Oregon in 2009, and this is where the magic starts happening. Right across the apartment where I live, there's this amazing martial arts dojo, mm. and they teach Aikido. They have a full-on program. So I actually signed up for that program before I went and signed on for my master's program in in um, oregon which i which is why i showed up to oregon in the first place yeah and it, and it was there they had systema as well is that that yes, was your introduction exactly yeah. exactly so while I, I did i trained for in aikido for two years there mm. uh, but fortunately that's where systema shows up there's actually one of the instructors there uh, would also train in systema and then yeah. i met systema and all of a sudden, all of the questions I had ever had yeah. uh, suddenly had answers. Or interesting. Suddenly so, opened up possibilities. Yeah. So that's a, so. What's really interesting to me about like listening to that, right? I'm 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 kind of flipping the script a little bit. I'm trying to listen to your story like an economist, right? You're you're telling my you're telling my story as a martial artist. You're answering me like a martial artist and a career martial artist, right? And I'm trying to listen to it in terms of incentives and things because I think. I don't know if you've ever looked back on that and your own decisions, like because we don't tend to, right? We just feel like we move from one place to another in our lives, from one decision to another, and it just had to play out that way. Mm -hmm. Either we feel like we, it was kind of fated or there was no free will or choice and we just found ourselves in the right place at the right time, or we feel like we thought really carefully about a decision and then we made it and we really tried to find that thing. But you, it, even in that one narrative there, talking about going from being a kid to finally finding Systema, uh, arriving at Systema in Oregon, like years and years later, there's so many kind of pushes and pulls there. So the first one that I could see is the the supply, right? You wanted to do martial arts. You wanted to be like Bruce Lee and just be cool and badass. But the only thing around at the time was karate, right? It wasn't, yeah. presumably if there'd been Kung Fu, do you know what I mean? At Bruce Lee School of Kung Fu in the same town, you would not have gone to karate, right? No. Um, or maybe if there'd been nothing at all, maybe your dad would have taught you judo. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you might have just gone for that and it would have been a very different path. So that's the first one. It's the, the availability constraint, you know, like we train the thing and that doesn't just extend to like, is there anything at all in India or in your town? Like if people have to travel more than an hour, typically they won't do something right. There, there's that as well. They just, they're like, well, you know, Aikido's right around the corner and Sistema's three hours down the road. And that's, that's kind of where you're at now, right? You're traveling down to us in North Carolina to train Sistema rather than start doing Aikido again or something like locally, which you could do in Newport News and things, you know, yes. um, like kind of that way. Absolutely. So, so I think that's, that's one really interesting kind of constraint coming in. And then the, you're shifting motivations and like the, 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 the trade-offs that are going on. So you want to become a badass, but what's required in order to be a badass short term is, 
you have to endure pain and discomfort and getting punched in the stomach and doing loads of push-ups on your knuckles and all the crappy stuff. How do we as humans, like, what flips the switch, do you feel like, to, to look at that thing and be like, okay, how can I defer gratification? I, I definitely, at some point, this is going to make me a badass. So it's worth doing all these push-ups. It's worth getting punched in the, in the gut. Like, at what point do our brains just go, this is not worth the trade-off. This is not actually fun. Like, being a badass is not as much fun as I thought it was going to be. Like, being on the path, it's hard. It's boring sometimes. It's difficult. It forces you to kind of, you know, look at your fears and things. And I think a lot of the time, that's where people drop out, right? The, you know, lots of people start martial arts when they're kids. Most of them bin it off when they become teenagers or and, and never come back to it again. And they take up other things and stuff like that. And that has to be part of it. Like they're not willing to go through the things to get there. And then you've got that additional question that if you, you if you lose your belief that doing all of these things will get you to where you want to be, then you're no longer willing to do them. Do you know what I mean? And that that maybe was what started your exodus from karate, right? You're like, OK, I'm willing to get punched in the stomach and keep doing this thing for years, but not if when I actually get into fights, it doesn't look like karate and I'm not the badass that I thought I was, right? So there's so many little pushes and pulls going on there. Have you thought about it from that point of view before? You just made me think about those things. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about one quick thing just to close the loop on what I was saying before. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. Real quickly, uh, what I realized, and that's also a follow-up to your question, um, why did I finally get to Sistema and then stop? Yeah. And my immediate economist reaction is because it was efficient. It yep. is the most efficient system that I found. But let's yep. let's get back to efficiency a little bit later on. Definitely. Uh, coming back, which is interesting, the same answer that Martin Wheeler gave when I asked him why, you know, given all the other martial arts that he practiced and mastered to a very high level, why has he arrived at Sistema? I mean, he does continue to kickbox and you know, like uh, do BJJ here and there, but every it's all through the lens of Sistema. That's his martial art now. And I'm like, why do you do that? And he's like, mostly efficiency because I can get all the things from Sistema. I can get one thing each from the others. Right. So he's like, it's like, it's just a really good use of time. And plus it gives you these other benefits, these other things that you do, but, but that's interesting. Yeah. Let's definitely come back, circle back to efficiency, but what were you going to say about the narrative? Yeah. So I was going to say, and now looking back at how like, I went through all of those motions and then back to your question about um, why, when people give up, uh, when things get tough, mm -hmm. um, I think, and this also relates back to the way I try and teach economics to my students. Um, what I've, what at some point, right? If you keep at it, uh, if it's mathematics, it's mathematics. If it's economics, it's economics. If it's martial arts, it's martial arts. Mm -hmm. But you realize at some point that being a badass is simply keep. The, the ability to keep on going when you don't want to. That's it. Mm. So from being able to do all of those things or your objective function all of a sudden changes, you're, you're, you start off thinking, oh, when I get in that fight, I'm just going to like kick everyone and then just rescue the lady in distress and take her out on a date. And then at which point we'll be attacked again. I'm going to punch them a bit separate. <laughs> and then twirl your mustache and then and then a Hollywood <laughs> number to, to round the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but but I mean, you know, this is actually fact and goes back to trade-offs. Most of the good fighters in Bollywood are terrible dancers because they spend more time <laughs> figuring out how to fight and they didn't really train too much in dancing. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, So, yeah, but then um, all of a sudden you realize that may never happen. Mm. But what may happen is you might get hit um, by a punch or by life mm. or 
by the last rep in the push-up you're trying to do. Sure. And if that's your testing ground, that's your proving ground. If you can work through that, hmm. then you can move on to the next day. And that's basically like so. So in in, in many ways, you know, uh, again, circling back to Sistema and compared to the other martial arts, I wanted to be Bruce Lee and then I wanted to be Steven Seagal. Hmm. But now as have been exposed to Sistema, now I only want to be me. I want to become a better me or discover more who I am, uh, what my expressions are. Yeah. And and Sistema is, I, I think Sistema is unique in that way, where it's a martial art, sure, but it's also so many other things. And eventually, it's all about you discover what your process is, what your expression is, um, yeah. what happiness is, what your strengths are, and uh, and you can work on it. Yeah. So that's so one answer to that question then might be that Sistema is something that evolves along with your motives and incentives, right? Whereas like some other martial arts, the goal is to be you know Ryoto Machida. The goal is to be you know exactly. Roger Gracie. Like the goal is to be Stephen Seagal or you know whoever it is like Morihei Yoshiba. You know you're looking at the pinnacle and saying I want to be him. But yeah. I mean maybe there are some maybe there are people who look at Vlad and they're like the reason I train Sistema is because I'm going to be like Vlad. But most of us realize that we're not going to be, and that's not the goal, right? That he went through brutal and quite terrible training that we probably wouldn't want to put ourselves through in order to get some of the skills that he has. And he's also a different person and he comes from a different culture and he has different motivations and, and he gets to teach full time, right? He has, he doesn't, doesn't have other jobs and other things to do as well. So like he's, he does that full time. So of course that's going to be the way that he goes. And, 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 but maybe there's some people, not just from a pragmatic viewpoint, but they realize after training for a while that that's not the goal. And that's not what Vladimir wants either. He's like, you know, you have to discover your own system. Don't copy me. And actually you're extraordinarily limited if you try and look at people and copy them in Sistema, whereas that's the primary means of transmission in other martial arts. It's just like, no, don't do it like this. Watch this. Now do what I just did, right? And Sistema, it's not like that. They might tell exactly. you to feel something different or trying to explore your internal environment or something and try and get a different sense of something, but they don't tell you what to do. They just kind of give you parameters to to practice and explore within yourself. So, And there's so much scope within Sistema between like health and security and you know psychological development that it can evolve with you right so maybe that's why it's a good it's it's an easy one to arrive at in the end because you don't run out of sistema right you can run out of karate maybe unless you're extraordinarily dedicated to it right and and, and you're trying to make it fit all things like maybe you can same thing with tai chi but um with sistema for me it's, it seems like the, the the breadth of applications is so wide that that venn diagram between the things that you want and the things that sistema provides there's so much more crossover in the middle, right? There's so much more shared space in there, you know, that, that probably you can move around within that middle spot in the Venn diagram for a long time. Whereas the Venn diagram between things that I get from training karate or Aikido and things that I need in life is probably a lot smaller. And it only takes having kids or getting fat or, or moving country for the, all of those things to change. And suddenly your priorities aren't aligned with karate anymore or something. Do you know what I mean? And I'm not, you know, bad-mouthing karate and saying this. Again, some people train it for life and get enormous um enormous uh benefits from that but um so I, I think the breadth of sistema is astounding and i think that's that's one of the things that maybe yeah. absolutely so you you basically hit it on the head right uh, with the uh, notion that um if you're trying to be someone else that's a limit mm. 
it's, you, you're basically looking at someone else and saying, that's what I want to be. But that means you have this clear end line and you're yeah. just trying to get there. That's it. But when there's nothing like that and it's a path of discovery, mm. then you just you keep you can keep on growing. And that's just so beautiful. Um, and then uh, but but also going back to the benefits of karate, I don't think. I would have continued, I would have even discovered Sistema mm. had I not been hit in my guts when I was first training in karate and I, I sort of realized there's some sort of strength from knowing that even if I'm hit, I can be okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So so that, that definitely gave me a lot. I mean, all mm. of experiences i've had with other martial arts always gave me something um yeah but, nothing is wasted right nothing is wasted no, uh, no, yeah. no but you're but once i discovered system i'm circling now back to the question about trade-offs once mm. i discovered system and someone actually asked me this question someone uh, who used to train with me in aikido um they realized slowly i was not showing up anymore for aikido classes and so we uh, came across one one day mm. uh, campus and she just asked me like um why don't you train in aikido anymore i know you're training in sistema but don't mm. you like aikido and i basically told her that um first of all when i train in sistema but not in aikido i don't feel like i'm missing out on much just mm. because i can still do exactly what i was doing in aikido if i wanted to sure yeah in the parameters of sistema i could keep on refining that there's mm restriction but then there's just so more so much yeah. more so i'm not doing that but in terms of classes um anytime i go to a aikido class that's time spent there which i could have been using for other things and yeah it just becomes too too expensive right the basic trade-off so, uh, so that so that kind of that speaks to some of the individual kind of motivations and the things that you, that might keep you training you know that might keep you doing a martial art let's say right um for a long time is the is is the the experiences of you know getting hit or maybe getting into a fight when you were younger right or getting bullied or any number of other things like that like um or getting injured and having to come back from it or something making you realize that resilience is a is a prized property and then that a martial art can give you more of it, right? And maybe Krav Maga or BJJ can help somebody become to feel more psychologically strong and less fragile so they can go out into the world and not worry about being mugged in quite the same way. They might still get mugged, right? <laughs> but at least they're not terrified of it, right? They, they feel like they have some options. And there's there's a strength, I think, in all martial arts in providing that, you know, in, in all martial arts that offer at least some degree of realism in the way that they train. But therein lies another question, right? So we've talked a little bit about the individual experience of training. And how that your individual motivation can shift based on that. But there's this perception that I've seen, especially over the last 10 years, probably with the advent of, you know, UFC and everything kind of being measured by the yardstick of MMA and stuff like that, of, of everything being hyper real and hyper pragmatic immediately. Right. There's there's a yardstick being used now for martial arts to measure their worth that was never applied or rarely applied when we were watching Bruce Lee movies in the <laughs> 70s and 80s. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, there just wasn't. It was like, it, back then, it's just like, oh, this is cool. It's exotic. It's not boxing. It's something, or wrestling. It's something a bit different. You could probably learn to kick somebody in the head. That would be really hard to defend, you know? Like, and and the, the, the more fun and the more kind of 
visual it was, the more attractive it became, right? And the more exotic it was. And and if somebody's studying Kung Fu, somebody else is doing like white crane eagle claw and they're like, oh yeah, well I'm doing still wire mantis. And it, it kind of becomes like a hipster like competitions. Like, yeah, you've never even heard of Jun Fat Gun Wow or something. Do you know what I mean? People people are trying to out hipster each other with their styles. And there's still a certain we subset. Rock, paper, scissors, but keep going. Yeah. Kind of like that. Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's still kind of a subset of people doing that, you know, kind of martial arts disciples and nerds, you know, like doing their own thing in that in that little bracket. But there's been an increasing tendency, um, and maybe it's part of the internet and advertising and, you know, marketing and stuff like that as well, for people just to to denigrate other martial arts in order to try and prove the worth of their own or the intrinsic value of their own. They're like, our unique value proposition, right? Trying to use your expressions that you've taught me through economics and things, right? Our unique value proposition of martial art is that ours works and theirs doesn't, right? Like everybody like is doing that, right? And they're like, look at this, these stupid knife defenses. And there's a video, for example, um, there's one online of this guy. I can't remember what his name is now, but I, I saw him a while ago showing videos of like how nobody could punch him in the head because he had such amazing um, head movement, like boxing head movement. And all he did was give punters on the street a pair of boxing gloves and then say, I have to move for three minutes. All you have to do is punch me in the head once. And he just did continuous head movement and the guy couldn't hit him. I was like, okay, but the guy wasn't allowed to hit him in the body. He wasn't allowed to stand <laughs> on his foot. Like he, he wasn't trying to hit him back, so he wasn't committing anything. Almost anybody with decent head movement or defense can use distance and movement in order to not get hit. So he's like, how to win any fight? I'm like, I didn't see you winning a fight. I saw you not getting punched in the head when all the guy was allowed to do was try and punch him in the head. You know what the target's going to be? You know, you can read the timing after a while. It's, like, it's impressive in one way, in another way, completely unimpressive, right? And I saw recently the same guy, the same guys showing these videos saying, we'll teach you real knife defense all these martial arts and then he's showing clips of Sistema, of Aikido, of Kali, of like Dan in Asanto, you know, really respected knife fighters and people through, you know, different styles, all doing this, you know, the disarm where if you manage to get hold of the guy's wrist or his arm, then you can strip the knife out by smacking the back of his hand with an elbow or with a fist, you know, and, the, and it comes popping out. And then it's him and his buddy in the dojo, and they're and they're like, "Look, this doesn't work." And he's got his <laughs> friend clinging onto the the knife as hard as he can, and then he's trying to punch the thing, and the guy's just holding it as tight as he can; it's not coming out. And he's like, "See, this is so dumb. Why do they bother teaching this martial art? This is such a con. We're going to teach you how to do it properly with stuff that works." Oh, and, and there's one part of me looking at that, going, "You d you have no idea what it is that you're doing. Like he's literally stabilizing the guy's wrist and holding it." holding his grip on while he's trying to punch his grip out. So he's a big Cro-Magnon throwback, attempting to use his blunt force trauma to get a knife out of the guy's hand when he knows he's going to do it. And that's nothing like what they're doing in their screamer, nothing like what we're doing in Sistema. His, his level of understanding is so low um, that it's preposterous, right? But there's this perception now that everything has to be measured by the benchmark of, you know, the MMA kind of bracket. And, the, it's like, and so it adds this extra kind of element in that, like, okay, objectively not your experience or my experience not what's cool or what's exotic or what looks fun but let's look at this objectively from a science viewpoint what evidence do we have that these things work in a fight right boxing you can say works in a fight because boxers get into fights and we've all seen one and right and it, and it works out quite well for the boxer most of the time right unless they get stabbed or something else happens um wrestlers get into fights and can do quite well unless they're up against a boxer right <laughs> or something like that a lot of the time um MMA fighters seem to get into fights a lot when they're off the clock. Do you know what I mean? They, they're in between gigs. They're fighting each other and stuff like that. And you see that there's fights and, and they happen. With Sistema that, and with Aikido and with some other styles, the criticism is 
we don't see the competitions. Where's the Sistema competition? Where's the Aikido competition? Where's where's the resistance and the, and the beef? You know, and on the one hand, there's truth in that, right? The nugget of truth is is that if you're kidding yourself by only training slowly and gently all the time, and you think that you have superpowers through this training, it's no good. You turn into Steven Seagal and you start deluding yourself, right? But on the flip side, it's like not everything that you're looking at is 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 easily perceived, right? Um, not all of the techniques or the principles or the movements that you can see are what they appear to be. And in, in some ways, especially with Sistema and actually with some Filipino styles, you're actually trying to hide the movements that you're making, right? So you have this global assessment that people are, are looking at and they're, they're not understanding what it is they're looking at and it's skewing the argument somewhat. So, and then, and then you feed that into people's individual motivations. If somebody looks at themselves as pragmatic and scientific <laughs> and based on a very realistic person, right? Not the sort of person that just gives into a cult or wants to move to another country just to study the culture, you know, or something like that. If somebody is self-described as pragmatic and scientific and real, then they're going to gravitate towards the things that present themselves that way, right? Have you have you given any thought to that? And maybe maybe yeah. that's part of the motivation yeah. for you shifting? Yes, uh, I have actually given that a lot of thought. Um, when I say I, that, let me be clear about the two pieces I've thought about. First of all, uh, the whole point that here's someone demonstrating a technique. I'm going to test this out here. Mm. I tested it out. It didn't work. Therefore, the technique doesn't work. Yeah. From a scientist's perspective, that's crap. Yeah. Because that's that's what we call anecdotal evidence. Mm. And so many reasons why that's not a scientific test. Sure. This goes back to a question. Uh, I mean, when I was first getting into 2009, there was this buzzword, which was does this thing work on the streets? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, now it's now it's more like, does this work in MMA? Right. It, it's just yeah. It's always like the resort to that. It's just like to work on the street. I want to know where this street is. There seems to be a lot going <laughs> yeah. on. You know, it's like exactly. I would move if I lived on that yeah. street. But, yeah. yeah. And, and, and <laughs> the basic, the core answer, and again, this probably is my belief. I don't know if uh, I cannot give you a scientifically valid version of whether this is true, but I believe. Whether some like what works on the street and what doesn't work on the street is you, the person. Sure. Yeah. That's it. Right. Yeah. So yeah. If, if you see you try to apply a technique and you see it doesn't work, well, that's you not working. It's not necessarily a technique. Sure. It's yeah. your interpretation of that technique. Mm. And, and again, Sistema is beautiful in showing you why your technique is your own. And there's. Yeah. Eventually, it's just you mm. taking these principles and starting to realize how they express themselves with you, the person. Sure, so, they're, to they're tools, right? They're means with. Right. I'm, I'm thinking, I know, in my mind's eye, I'm conjuring, conjuring a couple of people on Brands Hatch, the Formula One racing car track in uh, in England, right? If you, you know, you could say you could have a, a, a McLaren, do you know what I mean, a, an F1 McLaren car and a mini Metro, like a souped up mini Metro, maybe right. that could do about 150 or something, and you could put both people in it. And if the Mini couldn't beat the McLaren, right, if you put two different drivers in, then the Mini beat the McLaren, you'd be like, oh, the Mini Metro is crap. It can't, you know, it can't do the job. But then I'm pretty sure that you could put, you know, somebody, uh, Alonso, or do you know what I mean? Somebody really good, like a really good driver in the Mini Cooper, and they could thrash me in my McLaren. Do you know what I mean? There's no, I wouldn't be able to take the corners the right way. I don't even know how to handle the thing that I've been given, right? right. I've got no comfort with it. I, I don't know how to push it to its limits. I don't know how to relax enough to take the take the McLaren to top speed. And I could still easily lose, you know? So, so it is the driver, not the tool in a sense. Right, exactly, hmm. 
Exactly, right? So that's that's the first part, that why that sort of test of whether something works on the street is, is just crappy. I mean, mm. um, sure, maybe it doesn't work for you, maybe because you don't understand the technique, maybe there's something else that works better for you, and that's sure. a different question, but it's always, the emphasis is on you, the person. Yeah. Okay, so, and, and you have to discover what works for you. Sure. And, um, in all honesty, I haven't seen any other system that allows you the spectrum of discovery that Systema does. But again, mm. experience is much more limited than maybe a lot sure. of other people. So maybe there are other styles out there, which I don't know of, which do allow you that degree of freedom. Um, but yeah. in my limited experience, Systema is the only art that I've come across, which allows you to discover on your own. Mm the feeling is that makes it all work for you. And then you've got another set of trade-offs in that there might be styles that will make you extremely effective in fighting in this mythical street, do you know what I mean? And doing the things that you're going to do, but um, at great personal risk, right? Yes. Either the risk of damaging yourself if it doesn't work out too well, right? Um, or of doing so much damage to the other person that almost everything you do is like a brutal attack that's going to smash the head into the floor or something like that. And you could go to jail and never see your family and other stuff like that. And if you, if you don't learn the range of power that you can apply and you don't have options within what it is that you can do. If all that you have is that is the proverbial hammer on the end of your leg and you're just good at kicking people in the face, that's what you're going to do. Right. And that's, that's where it comes from. So, and the psychological states that those, that kind of training can get you into that might make you seek fights more often. So you might yes. be more effective at fighting, but law of averages is that if you're always finding fights, sooner or later you're going to find somebody who's better than you at it, right, <laughs> all the time. Whereas if you're if you're good at loopholing, escaping, evading, and fighting when you have to, then probably you'll get into less fights, and over a period of time, you'll probably survive better. A bit like, you know, the animal that hides versus the animal that attacks all the time, you know, or something like and, that. And, so there's that. <laughs> yeah, and, and Sistema also shows you how to clean yourself up after any sort of exchange sure so there's yeah. no memory there's no fear stuck yeah. with you if you're doing a good job at least uh you're getting rid of the fear that you can uh, otherwise sort of build around right yeah and and that i realized actually so remember the punches being punched i brought up at the beginning of sure. from my experience of karate when i was i went to sistema and i got hit Mm. I realized I still had memories of those punches, and it was sure. like fear locked in still yeah. from those. And and uh, so uh, just that mechanism of cleanup yeah. is so essential. And I, that's another thing I have never seen in any other system. So bringing it back to economics mm. or the set of choices, to me, it feels like um, simply the choice set of Sistema mm. is just much more expansive than the yeah. set of choices available in the other arts. And um, the basic principle is more choice is yeah. always better for you from the perspective of how well you can do in life. Because you can always choose to do the things that you like doing, right? Yeah. Within that spectrum, you can still stick to the stuff you like about karate and the stuff yeah. you like, like, you know, whatever. But there's just so much more uh, available in terms yeah. Choices when it comes to Sistema. And um, so that, as a general principle of economics, tells us that we yeah. are 
the better off for having those choices. Better off for having more affordances and choices, pretty much. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the other thing that I'm reminded of from our conversation a couple of, a few weeks ago is this idea of kind of obvious monetary benefits like versus non-monetary, non-financial benefits, right? Again, with economics, people tend to go straight away. It's like, it's all about maximizing the money. Like, where's the money? Where's the plan? But it's not. It's about maximizing value, isn't it, to an extent? Like, and, and value can be whatever you want it to be. Like, if I value using my legs more than I do being able to smash people in the face with them, I value the use of my fingers more than I do having, like, brick-hard smashed up gnarled knuckles that can just make fists and can barely close like i like to be able to play the guitar i like to be able to you know caress my wife you know things there's other things i like to do with my hands beside punch people in the face Sistema allows me all of those things right some other styles don't you you, you break yourself in the process of becoming uh you know a, a self-described killing machine you know that's what you're trying to do but it's it comes with a cost so it seems to me that this this fallacy of just looking at martial art and just thinking what's the payoff the monetary payoff is, can I win in the octagon, right? Or can I beat one person in a straight fight who doesn't have a weapon, right? If that's your, if that's to you, like hitting the jackpot, and that's what you're maximizing for with your choices all the time, then yeah, then maybe sometimes that's, you would go for MMA or you would go for maybe even Krav Maga or something like that, you know, because if you're just trying to beat someone in a one-on-one fight and you're maximizing for bad attitude, right? Or even kickboxing, Muay Thai, you know, that can, lots of martial arts can get you to that place. But if you're maximizing for almost anything else, like along the way, like, yeah, I want, a bit of that ability, but also the ability to survive against three people, somebody armed, a situation I didn't know, my legs already broken. Uh, I, I want to be able to survive and the post-traumatic stress after I've been through this. I want to be able to keep myself healthy. I want to help people. You know, If you're maximizing for anything else, these non-monetary values Absolutely. seem to take a lot more precedence, right? But And these are the things that are getting ignored, I think, sometimes in these, in these considerations. Yeah. No, that's that's beautifully put. Uh, I could have done it better myself. Um, it's uh, it's special in that sense. Um, and and going back to the the, the other two points real quick. Um, hmm. If you want to, if your objective, and this is what I'd recommend as an economist, if your objective is to be someone who can win an MMA fight, hmm. then. Go and train in MMA, but realize that is what you're training for. Sure, yeah. If your objective is to be prepared to survive if you're attacked, hmm. or to be prepared to not hurt yourself if you slip and fall on a trail, hmm. understand that training for MMA is not that, right? Hmm. So yeah. um, if you are clear about your objective function in life, hmm. then choices are going to be clearer for you. Sure. Um, but also constrained, probably, right, as well. Like, absolutely. Yeah. If, if there's no Sistema close to me, then what do I do? Although mm. now with the pandemic, you can train online. If you have an internet connection, <laughs> you yeah. can much. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm reminded a little bit of, um, of this book unrelated to Sistema that I read um, last year, I think it was. And it's uh, it just one of those ones I picked off the shelf in Barnes and Noble back when we could go into the Barnes and Noble and wander around and not worry about things. Um, so, and it was, I think it's called Quit Like a Millionaire. And it was written by this um, Chinese American immigrant. Mm. And she and her boyfriend, both, they're kind of one of these kind of millennials that retired at like 32 or something, you know, with, with enough 
money in the bank that their investments make more money than they spend in a year you know they get to that point there's a, i can't remember what it's called now there's like a, a tipping point where where you especially if they combine it with downscaling and living in a small apartment or something like that right you don't have to be a multi-millionaire to retire at 32 you just have to make sure that your investments are making more than you're spending every year right and there's some figure or something it has to be some percentage you could probably tell me what it was but um but i i read this book and i was like this is an interesting premise she was kind of talking about i'm not like a a neurosurgeon, right? I'm not a celebrity. I'm not making fat money, but I retired at 32 doing fairly normal jobs mm -hmm. and just being frugal and doing certain things and investing in certain ways that brought through. And I'm like, okay, I could stand to learn a little bit about being frugal. Sometimes I'm generous to the point of, you know, buying rounds for people in the pub all the time and getting home and being like, wow, I just spent $90 in one night in the pub, you know, things like that. So I, I just thought I'd give this a read and be like, okay, this is a normal. This is not Warren Buffett telling me how to get rich or somebody who's, you know, some entrepreneur that I'm not. I'm like, this could, this is possible. I'm an immigrant to the states. I might learn. Um, and essentially, you could boil down her whole argument to um, do a job, like maximize for the job that pays the most money with the skills that you have. Right. Do that for as long as you can until you're absolutely sick of it. And and then, like, in the meantime, stick the money away, live extraordinarily frugally, like save 80 percent of your income, spend only 20 percent of it living in the tiniest apartment you can, buying the cheapest beans in bulk and things like that. Right. So so it's, it wasn't rocket science at all. And um, but then when you read her story, she, you know, had a, like a stress related breakdown because she was doing like an office job that she despised. But she stuck at it for like seven years. You know, she, she had a miserable existence. She was like having a really hard time at home. She never really had any fun. And at the end of it, she's just like, and now I have the money and I'm <laughs> going to buy like a medium sized house. And now I'm going to do what what kind of I want to do. I'm going to focus on my health and recovering my health. And <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to start writing books and things, which is <laughs> what I always wanted to do. But I had to take a job doing this thing because when I looked at it, an artist or a, or a book writer only gets paid this much. And I knew that somebody working at a legal firm would get paid this much. So I went for this and just endured seven years of terrible. All right. So. So, so there's there's a weird prevailing attitude there. So she was willing to take that trade off. She's like, it's more important to me to be a millionaire and retire at 32 than it is to enjoy the next seven years of my life. That was essentially the decision she took. Hell or high water, health be damned, anything else. And I read this book and I could not identify it. I was like, I understand, I, I appreciate the work ethic here. This is, you know, <laughs> there's a certain drive in this and there's something to be admired in somebody who's willing to de delay that much gratification in order to get a result that she wants in the end. But she was miserable. And it's not a, it's not a, it's not a pattern that I would advise my kids to follow. Do you know what I mean? Kind of that way. So I'm kind of reminded of that. You know, it's like it's a you, you have to be very clear on what you want in case you get it. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's very cool. And uh, to, to add to that, right, um, as economists, we are trained to say people reveal their preferences through their choices. Mm. So what you're telling me is you get a lot of happiness from buying a round of beer for your mates in the pub. Yeah. That is a happiness which you're trading off for being a millionaire like seven, 15, 20 years down the line, and you're okay with that. Yeah. So you're revealing your preferences. Um, you might you might be deceiving yourself if you're saying that, oh, I really want to be that millionaire, but tonight I'm just going to go out and, oh, I love these guys. I'm just going to buy them around. Next time I won't, right? Yeah. You're basically just revealing what you want through the choices you make. Mm. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner the better. Now, if you can 
um, you, you can, of course, recognize certain things that you don't like your, about your preferences. If you're addicted to something, mm. uh, you don't like that. You regret waking up too late with bad hangovers every morning. Then, yeah, there's something mm. you should do to maybe change your preferences. But then that then you're also saying that I like I despise these hangovers much more than the fun I had last night. So I want to do something about it. You just described my 30s in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> With almost that same, same spread of incentives. I got to a point where the hangover, hangovers were not worth it to the same extent. That's, there you go. That's it, yeah. right? So so, the, so you can simplify your life by that, just that principle. Um, as long yeah. as you're willing to let your choices uh, reveal your preferences. Uh, so, so how do we relate this back to um, choices that we make in Systema training? I, I think I remember for many years there was there wasn't a lot of global guidance on how to approach your own training, right? Just kind of principles and things to do. And then when Konstantin Komarov wrote the Systema manual, and I think in the same in the same year as that was released, around like 2008, maybe 2009, um, I remember at an immersion camp there, he just went through this kind of hierarchy. And it's the first time I'd ever seen any kind of hierarchy prescribed mm. for where you should be spending your time. And and what was really interesting is like, well, you can't do the things that you want to do with your psyche unless your body is prepared. You have to be prepared to be hit. You have to be flexible. You have to be free. You have to be resilient. You have to let people stamp on you. Then maybe you, your body will trust you enough to do these interesting psychological things when you're in a fight. Um, if your psyche is not stable, you can't really hope to wrestle very well, right? That you'll get too scared of being constrained and, and you know, all of those things. And if you can't wrestle well, you don't understand body dynamics and relationships between people physiologically, then you probably won't be able to strike. You won't be precise enough to do it at a distance, right? If you can't wrestle, you almost certainly can't strike, right? It just won't come out that way. And then if you can't strike, there's no way you can use like a knife or a stick or something that's an extension of you, a more complex physiological problem to deliver force uh, with any kind of precision so he kind of or work with multiple people or objects or walls so there's this hierarchy that started ostensibly with the body at the bottom of it like let's prepare your body and like make sure it knows what to do but then he kind of dropped this bomb at the end of it like but underneath all of that is the motivation like why are you training but if you don't know why you're training you won't do any of these things you will not temper your body you won't put yourself through the psychological exercises you won't spend the time necessary to get skill in wrestling or striking or anything else and you won't get the benefits so you have to ask yourself not just once a year but like every time you go into training why am i here why am i doing this tonight right not just because it's a habit and you show up so how did how from an economist's point of view how do people get clear on their motivations cast off the the baggage and and just sharpen up their reasons for training and, and help that get onto them I love that question because um, now we're in behavioral economics ter territory. Mm. And so before I dig in more, uh, let me just define it as an economist would. So standard economics, the assumption is people are rational. Mm. And what we mean by rationality is you make decisions um, that are always, always in your best interest kind of thing. So. Right. And and you, you compare your costs and benefits and mm. only make decisions if your expected additional benefits outweigh your expected additional costs. Mm. Behavioral economics is the part of economics which recognizes people may not necessarily always be acting rationally. Sure. Yeah. And there are these psychological biases we need to bring in. Mm. Uh, the reason I gave you that little bit of context is because my, uh, the third chapter of my dissertation was about 
um, self-control problems. Mm. So, uh, you know, I mean, if people were rational, uh, we wouldn't really need a snooze button on our uh, alarm clocks, right? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, but we get benefits out of that snooze button. Obviously, that's why it's there. Yeah. Um, so there's there's this real tension between um, what my immediate gratification-seeking doer self wants to do, mm. and what my long-term good for you life uh, planner self wants to do. Mm. And uh, one of the problems I was dealing with was how to resolve this tension and what does it imply for policy? I won't get into the mm. implications. Uh, we can save that for later. But uh, the one thing I realized is if you realize that there is this change you want to make, mm. um, your planner self realizes that I want to do something over the long run. Like if you have this uh, in a year, here's where I want to be. Yeah. Let's say I want to drop 15 pounds, get get rid of this hip injury, you know, get more flexible and just become more skilled and happier in my training or something like that. Right. So, a lot of people might be there coming out of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. I have even more things. to do. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but But then once you have that plan, you can sort of backward induct and have a plan for a daily plan, right? You you can have exactly what you need to do every yeah. single day to get there. Mm. Uh, now, your doer self is going to complain when you mm. try and when it's when it's the time for your doer self to act. Time to do the like, things. There's there's another checkpoint every single time, right. even though the planner self has it all worked out. And that yeah. all you have to do is show up and do these things for half an hour. All you have to do is go for a run. All you have to do is uh, time restricted eating and stretch a little bit every day. But then we get to the to the crux and there's a there's a little negotiation every day right the when we self do. just always tells you a simple lie and that yeah. lie is tomorrow let's start yeah. tomorrow that's it right? right so today it's just not the good day let's just do it tomorrow and that tomorrow never shows up yeah uh, so how do we then figure out this thing and the the my mathematics at least just told me um the simplest way the least uh, least resist path of least resistance would be to to develop habits. Basically, you have to uh, invest in habits. And some, there, there's another important piece in here, which is this phenomenon of ego depletion. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that idea, but yeah, the idea that you uh, you lose willpower as you make decisions. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So every time the doer you're forcing the doer to still go out on that run, you're depleting willpower. Mm. And, and then later in the day, you'll have five beers and a cake and offset the runs. <laughs> so, so if you, so my my model at least showed me that it's a bad idea to try and do all of your, uh, you know, you don't try and fix everything that's wrong in your life mm. within a specific time horizon. Mm. On one, get that going, make it a habit, so that at some point. You can shut off your uh, doer self. Like the doer self all of a sudden feels a cost. So if you build in a habit, then the doer feels a cost to deviate away from that habit. Right. Mm -hmm. so it almost becomes this thing you have to do. If you once you build up this habit of running, you start feeling bad if you don't go out for that run. Yeah. But until you're there on in terms of that habit, don't try and fix other things. It's okay mm -hmm. if you if your diet's out of the window. It's okay. 
Yeah. Right? So a lot of us make the mistake of saying, I'm going to run and I'm going to watch my diet and I'm not going to, I'm going to work a lot. I'm not going to watch television. I'm not going to, I'm going to get off of Facebook and all of these things. Yeah. And then one thing breaks apart and you're like, oh crap, my day's just gone. It's bust. I'm going to try again tomorrow. But today I'm going to go back to exactly doing yeah. what I was doing. Yeah. And uh, my mathematics at least she seems to show, and some of the empirical tests I've done seems mm. to indicate that a much better way to deal with this is one problem at a time, one habit at a time. That's funny. The, the, the mantra that I use in the uh, stress-proof courses that I teach is uh, deliberately underachieve, right? Just, <laughs> just do one little thing at a time and even yeah. don't do that to the, to the utmost of your potential. Like, you know, just go for a walk today. Don't commit right. to going for an hour run all the time every day. It's like if tomorrow you feel like walking longer than 10 minutes, then walk 15. If you feel like running for a part of that, then run for part of that. And then eventually you might work, work your way up to a half marathon if you really want to. But if you don't, who cares? Now you've got a habit in which you're exercising exactly. and getting outside every day. So. And it's, it's yeah. so important to recognize your habit as a uh, basically what you've done is you've created a reference point mm. so that the departure away from that reference point now has a cost. Mm. Your doer self. That's basically what you're doing with that habit. Yeah. Um, or there's always a cost still to going out for that run. But all you've done is made it more expensive not to go out for that run because you've set up that reference point of that uh, happiness you get every time you go for there. So, so you so, gets used to it. Sorry, keep going. Yeah, no, can I ask you this point? What do you feel about the the concept of like applying arbitrary rewards or penalties to yourself? Like the idea of creating a cost when you've been out on something like, oh man, I was on Facebook today for an hour, so now I have to put 20 bucks in this jar. And like, you know, you, you were assigned like a monetary cost. Is it, I've been doing this um, remote class um, with a guy in guy in Ukraine and uh, teaching like how to how to work with a um how to work with a stick right um and just kind of quite complex manipulations and moving things around in like a Russian style and uh, and often people drop the stick right they're, they're trying to move something around and they drop it down because it was a difficult motion and it's just difficult to carry um and he assigns this thing he's like okay every time you drop the stick you have to put 10 bucks in a jar or you have to do 20 push-ups like right away and then that assigns a cost to your brain which says, which eventually your, your brain will interpret this as, I can't afford to drop this stick. I have to relax myself and be more aware, more mindful. I can't afford to just treat this thing like something that flings around. And if you're working with a sword or something, it's even more important because you might cut yourself, like slice your own foot off or something. So you have to assign some sort of penalty in order to train your brain to care about it enough. right? And I thought that was a really interesting concept. I, I've not experienced a lot of benefit with extrinsic positive rewards like oh once i've lost this amount of weight i'll go out and eat a bunch of food or do you know what i mean or like once i've got to this like level then i'll go yeah. treat myself with it because then you enjoy the food more than you did the training and <laughs> you build a different habit you know the cheat days and things don't seem to work that well in the long term but um, I love, yeah i love that you brought those two, two things up um yeah my the the other part of my mathy model uh showed me that one particularly if you have a certain kind of habits, yeah. little slip is basically you letting go of that ball of wool and it's just going to completely unravel from that point. Mm. So positive rewards are tricky. Mm -hmm. uh, I will also say negative rewards, the ones you're talking about, are also that they're, they're definitely useful because, again, uh, not only are you using this habit reference point, but you're also adding in an extra cost of not putting in the work that day, right? So sure. for your doer self, that's good. But 
the doer self itself can be strategic. So mm. what that means is at some point, it might be like, oh, crap, I'm just going to lose 50 bucks if I go to this session today. Yeah. You know what? I'm just not going to go to that session. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So it's yeah, uh, it's willing to pay the price. It's like, yeah. Right. And that, that cost itself can be a reason. So this model, this this solution will work only if we are um, we are in the session and then we are we're paying this price. OK, but yeah. my decision to get in the session itself mm. is a decision that the doer first has to make. Right. Mm. Yeah, I see the distinction. Yeah. The, if the expense is not carefully done, then the mm. doer might say, it's just getting too expensive for my life to get in that session in the first place. So, so mm. yes, these just abandon the entire project. They're like, yes. you know, why did I, why did I create this ridiculous framework for myself where I'm punishing myself? Okay, like, I've yeah. Now, yeah, I've now yeah. donated one thousand dollars to the party I hate. I don't think this is worth it. That's <laughs> <laughs> not worth it, you know. Exactly. Rick, mate, I, I feel like we could do another hour just on incentives and ways to set things up, and it'd be really fun. But I'm uh, mindful of your time and uh, of folks coming into this. But thanks so much for uh, for taking the time to to chat today. I'm really looking forward to. I know, I know you're writing a book on economics for uh, for for beginning students or maybe people who don't even have like a math or an economics background, right? So I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, reading your finished book when it comes out. And um, any any advice for other people getting into Systema training? Maybe people of might be walking your path and you, you don't want them to make the same mistakes that you did or you would go a different way or are you just happy with all the choices you made because you're an economist <laughs> <laughs> behavioral economics allows me to be happy i can always rationalize the choices i've made and be ex post happy right <laughs> making the choices that may not have been necessarily happy with them no 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 i mean you need regrets in life to figure yeah. out what your preferences are right your your choices slowly guide you sure to the person you want to be. So um, I don't really have any advice for people who are trying to decide whether they should train in a martial art or not. I mean, it depends on so many other things about their objectives. But what I'll say is try and get a clear sense of your objectives before you make decisions. What do you really want? Yeah. Uh, and, and you can actually just study the choices you've made to mm -hmm. help understand that. And, and the feeling you get from the choices you make, that tells you where you want your life to head. Um, so that would be my advice for people just out there who are still trying to decide whether to get into system or not. The ones who are already there starting out, um, just enjoy your time. Uh, system is all about finding comfort in discomfort. Mm -hmm. And like anything else that is worth learning in life, uh, mm -hmm. the lessons are in the struggles. Yeah. Um, so get yourself to the limit of your push-up hold mm. and observe your state. Yeah. Um, and today, you know, I'm just using the push-up hold as an example. Anything else, sure. right? You always want to test where you are, but within the confines of your body, you want to feel good after uh, the workout. Uh, just use the breathing to wake up and feel good. I mean, just yeah. Just just realize the glory of. <laughs> being able to reset every minute with a single breath. It's just amazing. It's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. My life is crap to, yeah. hey, let's see what, what, what comes next. It's just amazing. That's, so, it's kind of a superpower. Not everybody yes. can do that. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. So that's awesome. Um, and then 
going back to uh, this chat this morning, um, I had a blast of a time. Um, I'm so happy anytime I get to talk about anything, really. Uh, but I do, I do get rambly, so uh, apologies if you have to edit the conversation back on track several times. Oh, hey, if I had to apologize every time I got rambly, there wouldn't even be a podcast. It would just be me <laughs> apologizing for an hour and a half every time. So that'll be it. Thank you, Rick. That's brilliant. I felt we've gone full circle and gone back to your channel to your dad again and said, hey, people, there's a commitment to this if you're going to do it as well. Hold the push up a little bit longer. Like, embrace the suck a little bit. It's brilliant. We've come full circle. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so much, mate. Hope to see you in training again soon. Maybe next month down here in NC as we open up. Be there. Yep. Uh, take care and we'll see you soon. Cheers, boss. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about classes, workshops, and seminars at NC Sistema, please visit us online at www.ncsistema.com. <laughs>